two things before I start. Two things you're thinking right now, and I know you're thinking this. One, I'm a cruel boss um, to make him stand up here and read all those names. And yes, I can be. He did nothing wrong this week, but I just figured I can make him do it. Uh, The second one, and hopefully I'll answer this in the sermon today, is how does this matter to us today? These are some strange names and some strange stuff being written in here. Um, Stick with me. I hope you'll see that this morning. Well, beginning in Wales in the summer of 1970, one of the greatest rock and roll songs ever written was created. Jimmy Page and Robert Plant of the band Led Zeppelin spent some time after their Fifth American tour to write uh, the song Stairway to Heaven, and it's become one of the most recognizable songs ever written. It didn't take long for some to play the record backwards, though, looking for some kind of hidden message. Unfortunately, some who heard these supposed hidden messages decided to spread the word to Christian parents that bands like Led Zeppelin were hiding satanic messages in their music. Now, aside from the fact that it would be impossible to write a song that's intelligible in English and backwards as well, um, the fact is that it really served no purpose. There were many who heard patterns and sounds that simply just didn't exist, but their minds thought that something was there. The fervor that broke out, and as a child in the 80s, I remember this, that this backmasking happened. The fervor that broke out was not caused by hidden messages, but rather what's called priming. What this means is that anyone who heard these songs played backwards would only hear garbled noise. That is, until someone else told them what they heard. They primed their thoughts and their minds to tell them that they heard something that really wasn't there. People were being told to hear what to hear, and their brains filled in the gaps, and satanic messages came out. The truth is, there were no evil messages hidden in the music. There, a lot of bands may have been very overt about it, but the worst thing to come out of this wasn't misheard lyrics or something that we can laugh at now. Christians who believed that something sinister was happening in the music decided to focus their time on culture change rather than sharing the gospel. And saying how Jesus is the cure for what we all suffer. We lost opportunities. What was happening is that the world, and even Christians, were trying to build their own stairway to heaven without even realizing it. Those who weren't Christians were trying to do it with whatever they believed in. Their goodness, their money, their time that they give to others. And many Christians were doing the same thing. Except instead of fighting the good fight of faith... They were busy fighting something that doesn't even exist. Now the connection from our modern culture to the era of Genesis is that people in Genesis 11 tried building a stairway to heaven too. After the flood, they quickly became corrupt. They attempted to build a tower, not literally to get to heaven, but rather to show God how great they are. The creatures are now saying they're as good or better than the creator. They quickly became corrupt They believed they didn't need God anymore, so they were going to show him how powerful they were. Now this leads us to the passage today. The human heart, each and every person in here today, our hearts constantly attempt to build stairways to heaven. Not literally a staircase, but rather our hearts desire a different way to find salvation. We don't like having to get rid of our desires. We don't like having to serve others. We don't like submitting to the word. So we do all that we can to show how good we really are. That really is the reason why we're here today. 
We all struggle with the same thing that those in Babel struggled with. Worshiping anything and everything but God. Whether it's someone who's bent on finding a demon around every corner or someone who gives their lives in service to others, we all have a problem with idolatry, every single one of us. Now this morning is sort of a strange way to preach because I'm bookending the sermon. This is the the first bookend. The second bookend will come at the end. And in between, I want to kind of dive into this passage uh, and show you some things that, that, that I didn't even realize before. So hold that thought Hold this thought of Jesus and the gospel and the significance of this passage till the end, and hopefully I'll be able to tie everything together. A few months ago, when we started preaching in 1 Corinthians, we left off in Genesis chapter 10. It was a long list of names that none of us can really pronounce. I told Corey, I said, the truth of the matter is that if he would have gotten up here and mispronounced the names, nobody in here would have made any note about that. We, we don't even know how a lot of these are pronounced unless you've taken some kind of Hebrew and you know how to get that stuff coming out of your throat when you hear the stuff. But we worked through a list of names of the descendants of Noah and we showed how the, the gospel was spread through early, early missions. And I think all of us were kind of relieved when that was over. Finally, done with these genealogies, this list of names, no more No more family trees. Well, I'm not going to apologize because I'm not sorry, but I understand what you feel like because I've got to preach this. And it's not just because the names are difficult. Part of it comes because we don't have a cultural connection with these ancient Hebrews. The Hebrew culture of the Bible is so different than our own. See, most of us, when we name our children, we don't really think through what that name means. Maybe some of you did. We're far more concerned with how it sounds, my wife's name is Morgan, and at the time I made a joke, uh, there was a, a senator, uh, I think from North or South Dakota, named Byron Dorgan, and I said, if I was his son, would you have married me? Her name would have been Morgan Dorgan. And her answer was no, I wouldn't marry <laughs> Yeah. See, we, we don't think of, of, of names meaning anything. We, we think, does it sound good? Does it have a flow? Does it have a rhythm to it? We don't also consider how someone 10 or 20 generations before us have affected our lives today. But the Hebrews did. And these names that we read, they're important for two main reasons. Uh, And I think you'll understand both of them. First, they're important as a record. I know this will sound very funny to you if you've never done genealogical research. It is one of the most addictive things that anyone can ever do. There is nothing that I've ever done in my life where I'm up at three in the morning and not willing to go to bed. Because I can just find out one more thing, one more twist, one more turn, one more name, one more handwritten page on a census record from 1860. Every person who's done family research will tell you that this is true. Now, I'm not sure if you've looked through the, the historical record of the ancestries in Scripture as anything more than just a record. Just like your family tree tells a story, so do those in Scripture. But that's not all they do. The second thing they do is that they give us direction to Christ. In the New Testament, we have the Gospels of Matthew and Luke explaining the family background of Jesus. And it's easy to skip over when you're doing your Bible reading, Matthew 1 and Luke 3. Again, it's a long list of names. But there's a purpose to those. 
In Matthew's genealogy, we have a descending record leading through Joseph's family tree from Abraham to Jesus. And in Luke's genealogy, we have the opposite of Matthew's in that it is an ascending record from Jesus all the way back to Adam. Matthew is showing us the royal line while Luke shows us the bloodline. And you're asking, what in the world is the difference? Well, the royal family line always came from the father. Jesus had no earthly father. He has the right to rule, though, that belonged to David through his lineage here. If you think of Lord of the Rings, if you've ever watched that movie, Aragorn was the strider. He was a, a ranger. He was loose out in the wild. And his family line, generation after generation after generation, had abandoned their rightful ruling throne. They left Gondor to, to go rule, uh, uh, to live out in the wild. And Aragorn takes that back. It's his right to rule. And Jesus, through the line of Joseph, it's right to rule. And Matthew was showing, giving the legal proof to be king. Luke was showing that Jesus was the man that people had been waiting for as the Messiah. These two accounts of the genealogy of Jesus are showed to, uh, intended to show us that Jesus is king both legally and through his bloodline. I know that's a lot. But I hope that gives you some interest in these names. They're not just names on a page. They're not just space fillers. Every word of the Bible matters. And these passages show us that Jesus is not only God, he is the Messiah, and he is king. Charles Spurgeon, the great preacher of the late 19th century, gave this advice to his students. He says this, I believe that those sermons which are fullest of Christ are the most likely to be blessed to the conversion of the hearers. Let your sermons be full of Christ from beginning to end, cram full of the gospel. As for myself, brethren, I cannot preach anything else but Christ and his cross, for I know nothing else. And long ago, like the Apostle Paul, I determined not to know anything else save Jesus Christ and him crucified. And he continued to his students. You remember the story of the old minister who heard a sermon by a young man, and when he was asked by the preacher what he thought of it, he was rather slow to answer, but at last he said this, if I must tell you, I did not like it at all. There was no Christ in your sermon. No, answered the young man, because I did not see that Christ was in the text. Oh, said the old minister. But do you not know that every little town and village and tiny hamlet in England, there is a road leading to London? Whenever I get a hold of a text, I say to myself, there is a road from here to Jesus Christ, and I must, and I mean to keep on his track till I get to him. Well, said the young man, but suppose you are preaching from a text that says nothing about Christ. Spurgeon responded, then I will go over every hedge and ditch, but what I will get at him. So we must do, brethren, what we must have in Christ in all of our discourses, whatever else is in or not in them. There ought to be enough of the gospel in every sermon to save a soul. Take care that it is so when you are called to preach before her majesty the queen, and if you have to preach to a chairwoman or chairman, still always take care that there is real gospel in every sermon. I'll be the first one to apologize for failing as a pastor. I apologize for my lack of compassion when people are hurting and my failure to act when there's needed action. But I will never, ever, ever apologize for preaching the gospel in every sermon that I preach. 
Every page of the Bible points to one thing. It points to the Christ. It points to the gospel story that we are sinners and we are only saved through the blood sacrifice of Jesus Christ. Every passage says that. All roads in Scripture lead to Christ. Now let me say this also. This list of names in Genesis 11 does not contain the name of, word, the name of Jesus. So let me go over the hedge and the ditch to unpack how Christ is the subject of this passage today. Genesis covers more than 2,000 years, yet almost a third of this book is in the life of Abram. He would also later have his name changed to Abraham. He was a friend of God. James 2.23 says, Abram believed God, and it was counted to him as righteousness, and he was called a friend of God. 2 Chronicles 20 says, Do, Did you not, our God, drive out the inhabitants of this land before your people Israel and give it forever to the descendants of Abram, your friend? Isaiah 41.8, But you, Israel, my servant Jacob, whom I have chosen, the offspring of Abram, my friend. Now, why was Abram called a friend of God? I'm not going to give you another long Spurgeon quote, but I will say this is the first line of one of his sermons from 1887. He says this, Abram was called a friend of God because he was so. Okay, it's good enough for me. Abram was called a friend of God because that's what God wanted to do. Now, don't get hung up on, on Abram's behavior so much or his obedience so much. Yes, we're called to be obedient to Scripture and obedient to God and his word, but that's not what saves us. That's not what saved Abram. You'll miss the point if you focus on his actions rather than who he trusted in. God does whatever he wants. Psalm 115.3 says, our God is in the heavens. He does all that he pleases. Throughout the Bible, there are examples of God doing things that absolutely make no sense to any of us. But they happen because that's what God wanted. Would we have picked Israel among the nations? Yet mighty Egypt. Strong army, lots of land, manpower. No. God knew what he was doing. Would any of us pick David over King Saul? King Saul was a large man who was a king, and he had power and an army and might and money versus a puny little shepherd boy. Look at what Paul writes in 1 Corinthians 1. Not many of you were wise according to worldly standards. Not many were powerful. Not many were of noble birth. But God chose what is foolish in the world to shame the wise. God chose what is weak in the world to shame the strong. God chose what is low and despised in the world, even things that are not, to bring to nothing things that are. God chose for his purposes Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, David, and you, Christian, not because you were too good to pass up. Look at verse 29 of 1 Corinthians 1. So that no human being may boast in the presence of God. Everything that God does is to bring himself glory. Why did he make Abram his friend? To bring himself glory. Because it was part of God's plan all along. And we're not going to spend this morning looking at every single name in this list. It's not that they aren't important. But it's my conviction that the main idea of this passage should be the main idea of the sermon. So what's the main idea of the passage? If you said the Sunday school answer Jesus, you'd be exactly right. But how? This list is given to show us the importance of Abraham in God's unfolding story of grace. He was a friend of God. 
Now the caution here is that when we see that Abraham was a friend of God, well, okay, if I'm a friend of God, then God's going to bless me with all the stuff that I want. Preachers on TV will tell you this. Send in your seed money, and God will multiply that by seven. You're single and want a spouse? Well, pray to God for that, and God will give you whatever your heart desires. But look at verse 29 and 30. Keep in mind the story of God in the lives of humanity to this point has led up to Abram. He, he's one of the most important people who's ever walked the earth. You'd think he'd be blessed beyond all uh, of his expectations. But there's a stunning statement in verse 30. Look at this. His wife Sarai was barren. Now if we decided to write autobiographies of ourselves, do you think we would write something like that to describe us? Do you think any man or woman would want to explain first, the first instance of us knowing who she is or he is, that they were not able to conceive? We would hope that our weaknesses and failings are not the first thing that someone records in our biography. This is not something Sarai would have shared with everyone either. Today, people value authenticity and transparency. We're told that we need to be open about our struggles and our sins, but there are some things that are too uncomfortable and painful to share. For families who are unable to conceive, it is a brutally painful experience. You see people without people with kids, uh, people who aren't even married having children, and you, you think, well, God, why them, not me? Men feel emasculated, and women feel like they're not a full woman. It's tragic for everyone involved. You feel incomplete. So it's not hard to imagine how Sarai would have felt, alone, rejected, abandoned. What's funny is that Abraham's name actually means father. Here, Abram is a good man up to this point, but he's child, childless. Who is going to care for him when he gets older? Where's his legacy going to be? It must have surprised people to see that he had no kids. Here is this man who God has blessed, God has said he's a friend, and yet, where are the children? seems like God may have played some cruel joke on him. But what we will see when we continue our study through Genesis is that Abraham was a pivotal character in God's story. And we'll see most importantly how God used Abraham to bring people to Christ. Now, as you listened here to Genesis 11 being read, you probably had flashbacks to Genesis chapter 10. But you may have gone even further back to Genesis chapter 5. Flip back a few chapters and you'll see a, a similar line of names. Now what's interesting is that chapter 11 and chapter 5 have the same vocabulary and literary pattern. The patriarch is named and then the announcement of his descendants' birth is listed after. Seems like another list of names but there may be something you have missed. What do you see in chapter 5 that you don't see in chapter 11? In chapter 5 you see names and then you see this statement. And then he died. We don't have that in chapter 11. Now don't pass this by thinking it's accidental or, or, or that, that I'm reading into this too much. What you'll see in the following chapters of Genesis, it'll show you the importance of the optimism that Abraham brings. Moses, the author of Genesis, already knew this. So he's piecing this together and he's writing this out knowing the end story. One commentator put it this way. The absence of death in chapter 11, is the author's reflection on God's patience towards sinful man. 
There is no catastrophe following the Babel calamity as with the flood. Rather, there is the appearance of Abram's family. What we saw happen with the flood and the Tower of Babel is frightening. God's judgment is swift and it's severe. But what we see happening after each instance of judgment is that God not only restores what he destroyed, he reestablishes humanity's line. Human sin, no matter how horrific, will never stop God's plans and purposes for the world and his creation. So for the first nine verses of chapter 11, we saw a quick retelling of the story that happened after the Tower of Babel. If we stop there, if we said, okay, that's enough, we're pretty depressed at this point. We're we're thinking, okay, well, these, these people made a tower trying to show off to God. God gave them different languages spread across the earth, and then that's it. But the truth of the matter is this story repeats itself over and over and over again throughout Scripture and in our lives, too. God blesses us. He gives us what we need. And at some point along that story, we realize, well, we want something more. We want bigger. We want better. We want different. So we turn our backs to what God is doing, and we go after something else. It's idolatry. And then when all that collapses, when all that goes away, what do we do? We run back to God. And we say, God, forgive us of our sins. Forgive us for what we've done. And he welcomes us back in. And the cycle continues over and over. But let's be honest in all of this. Even with understanding God's sovereignty and God's grace that he's given to his people and his creation, if we were all powerful, if we could put ourselves in the position of having all power and all knowledge, what would we have done after the first 11 chapters of Genesis? The first two people, the jewels of his creation, did the one thing they weren't supposed to do. They disobeyed a direct order from their creator. One of their sons killed the other. Then the world grew so corrupt that the only right response from God was to wipe it out, save one family. But he had a plan all along. This is not accidental. This is not something that God had to think up on the fly. No, this was part of his plan. So God uh, gave people a taste of what would one day come. He restored the world after the flood, which connects to what God's going to do one day for us. He protected Noah's family from the flood, but not long after Noah, he stepped out on ground, sin took over again. Noah's drunkenness led him uh, to to sin and led his son to sin, which brought a curse on his line. Now, I want to ask you something and answer this to yourself. What would you have done if you had the power and authority that belongs to God? That if you created humanity, you created the universe, you created everything that we see, and all of it is corrupted... What would you do? I can tell you what I would do. In my own heart, I'd wipe it all out. Get rid of it all. I created you. You're disrespecting me, disobeying me. You're rebelling against me. You're done. Right? I would have given up on humanity. But in God's perfect wisdom, he understood that in humanity, sin, rebellion of the worst kind, is the way that Jesus shines the brightest. Now, don't misunderstand me. We don't sin so that Jesus can be glorified. Anyone who teaches that's a false teacher or a cult leader. He is glorified in spite of our sin. It's not our sin that God is glorified in, but rather in what God did for us because of our sin. And here's what I mean. God created us knowing that we would sin and knowing that we would rebel against him. 
We get a tiny taste of that when we have children, don't we? We knew. We knew before uh, our, our, our wife was pregnant, before my wife was pregnant. I knew that that little child was going to be a sinner. I knew that that little child would rebel against me. I knew that they would disobey me. When we adopted our two sons, I knew that bringing them into our homes, they would rebel against me, just like I did with my parents, just like each and every one of you did with yours. But still, we adopted our sons and we still had a daughter. We know they won't respect us. We know that they'll often do the exact opposite. Yet we still choose to have these bundles of joy. Have you ever thought that having children is a taste of what we do to God and what God has done for us? He knew what we would do, and yet he still chose to give us life. For Christians, he knew that we would rebel before, and we would also rebel against him after we were converted to the faith. Do you ever wonder why God would do this? We know that he is loving. We know that he cares for his creation. But why would he ever bless us so much when he knew that in our hearts, the idol factories that are our hearts, all that we want is something else, something different? For those with teenagers now, do you still love them? For those who have adult children, do you still love them even though those teenage years were a nightmare? Why do you think you love them? You love them because they're yours. They're your children. No matter what they do, no matter how many things that they say to you to hurt you, you still love them because they're your children. You see beyond the screaming and the tantrums. You saw that their purpose in life is bigger than the few years in puberty. You recognize that your purpose was to train them and raise them up to love God and serve him with their lives. They belong to you. Don't you think that God thinks of his children in the same way, only infinitely more? I don't understand fully God's sovereignty. I don't. There are many times in my own life where I've questioned God's authority, but what I see more and more as I grow and as I read the word and as I study, more and more where I see in the Bible there's two things. We can never thwart God's plans, and he always does what he wants. I'm convinced of that. The special place that Abraham holds cannot be ignored, but more important than Abraham or any of the other names on this list is what it all leads to. We'll see how the story of God's grace unfolds in the coming weeks. And we should see that all of this is where people were being used by God for his glory. The truth of the matter is that Abram was just a man. If you put your faith in Abram, he'll let you down. If you put your faith in me or any of the other elders or the staff guys, we'll let you down. If you put your faith in your spouse, they will let you down. Anybody that you put your faith and trust in will let you down, save for Christ. And Abraham would agree to this. How do I know this? I want to read from John 8, beginning in verse 38 or 48. And this begins immediately after Jesus said that the Jews in the audience can't understand him because they don't have God. Keep in mind Abraham in all of this. The, it says this, the Jews answered him, are we not right in saying that you are a Samaritan and have a demon? Jesus answered, I do not have a demon, but I honor my father and you dishonor me. Yet I do not seek my own glory. There is one who seeks it and he is the judge. Truly, truly, I say to you, if anyone keeps my word, he will never see death. 
The Jews said to him, now we know that you have a demon. Abraham died, as did the prophets, yet you say, if anyone keeps my word, he will never taste death. Are you greater than our father Abraham who died? And the prophets died? Who do you make yourself out to be? You can see the situation, the, the, the tension that's there. And Jesus says this. If I glorify myself, my glory is nothing. It is my Father who glorifies me, of whom you say he is our God. But you have not known him. I know him. If I were to say that I do not know him, I would be a liar like you. But I do know him, and I keep his word. Your father Abraham rejoiced that he would see my day. He saw it and was glad. So the Jews said to him, you are not yet 50 years old, and you have seen Abraham? And Jesus said this thing that is the most offensive thing that he could have said to these people. He said this, truly, truly, I say to you, before Abraham was, I am. Abraham rejoiced in what he saw Jesus doing. Why? Because Jesus is God. That statement, I am, ego a me, it can only be coming from God. That statement is a name that God used for himself in the Old Testament. Do you wonder why people picked up stones to throw at Jesus? They knew what he was saying. He was saying, I'm God. I am God. This passage of names and ages that brings us to Christ, not only because Jesus' ancestry is here, but because every single one of those names represents people who failed to live up to God's standard. They did their best, but it was never good enough. And this is what we have to figure out when we read a passage. Who it was written to, who's doing the writing, but most importantly, what does it mean? Jesus said that Abraham rejoiced because of Jesus. Why? Because he knew Jesus was the one that they were waiting for. All of these names on this list that may seem so foreign to you, that may seem this is not applicable, this is not something that, that you would sit down and enjoy reading, let's be honest. There's a reason why most people, when they read the Bible in a year, stop in numbers. It's hard. It doesn't really make much sense to us. But the reason that all of these things are here is to point us to Christ. The same thing Abraham was waiting for, we have now. And this morning, my hope is that you're not clinging to your good works or the greatness of your family tree or even to Abraham, Isaac, or Jacob. My hope is that you see your sin for what it is, totally destructive, and that you see Jesus for who he is, and who he is is found in this passage. The Messiah, the one that they were waiting for, the one that the Jews for thousands of years had been hoping and waiting for to come was in their presence in John chapter 8. And the truth of the matter is, he's in your presence right now. That we are all faced with, with this situation of whether we're going to live on our own goodness or whether we are going to take the goodness of Christ as our own. And this is what happens when we come to trust in Christ. When, when we ask God for forgiveness and we say we're giving our lives to Christ as our king and ruler, what happens is this is exchange. Our sins get placed on, God, on Jesus and Jesus takes the penalty and his righteousness is credited to us. So that when we stand before the Father, we can say it's not me, no. It's in what you did for your, through your son. It's his goodness that I can come to you boldly. It's his goodness that makes me able to say, God is my father. It's his goodness, not mine. 
the only way that we can receive this goodness and forgiveness of our sins is to repent, turn from our sin, and trust in Christ with all that we have. Would you pray with me?